Welcome to another exciting episode of the Alternative Investment Podcast. Listen in as host Andy Hagens interviews asset managers, family offices, and industry thought leaders as they discuss the most effective strategies to grow generational wealth. From commodities to real estate, venture capital, private equity, and more, we cover it all here on the Alternative Investment Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I am your host, Andy Hagens, and today we're talking about family offices and a family office perspective on real estate investing, which is, a, I think is a really interesting topic. We've had a lot of guests lately from the family office world. And joining me today is Alex Bathal, who is founder and executive chairman at Revitate. Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks, Andy. Great to see you. And thanks for having me. So let's start then at the beginning. And so in our, our listenership, I mean, we have some professionals who work for family offices, uh, or principals at family offices. And we also have a lot of you know, high net worth investors who are just interested in the world of family offices and you know, how they think, how they invest. So could you tell us a little bit about your history and work experience with family offices? Uh, sure. So uh, by way of background, I come from a family that's been in business for a few generations out here in, uh, in the Newport Beach area, uh, so Southern California. Family's always been in real estate, uh, real estate development. And then in the 1960s, uh, my parents started an apparel company, which thankfully has been a successful enterprise over the decades. It's actually still around today after 55 years. And it was from those, those two efforts in the real estate side and the consumer product side in, in the apparel industry that we were able to form the, the family office. The roots of that were uh, born by uh, after business school, I came and joined the family business in the apparel industry. My parents were retiring and my sister was working there and I, I joined it not to, not to take over the family business to be there forever, but really to help scale the company, to grow it uh, and be able to exit. And we were successful in being able to do that. We took the company digital, we took it global and sold it to Swander Pace Capital and Goldman Sachs Private Equity. Uh, back a number of years ago, and uh, that was a great experience. I, I stayed on board for a number of years running running the company on behalf of the board uh, before transitioning out to oversee our, our family investment office called Raj Capital. So that was a, uh, it was a big event in my life to, 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 over, to ultimately pursue what was my long-term plan of, of being on the investment side of the house uh, within our family enterprises. And uh, a big event happened in 2013 when our family acquired the Sacramento Kings basketball team as part of the Vivek Ranadive leg group. So through that experience, we did a lot of real estate development and through that, through the ownership group, built the new Golden One Center in downtown Sacramento and the district around it uh, called DOCO. So that was a very successful urban redevelopment. And it took me further down the path of, of real estate, real estate development, um, in real estate management as as a, the, the core of, of what I do and really prompted the establishment of Revitate as as our investment platform owned by the family office to seek other investments in, in, in areas that the family has experience. I see. Wow. So there's there's a lot there to unpack. Well, let me start with the exit of, of the apparel business because 
I've reviewed Revitate and you know some of the the different funds and investments you're involved in. I don't think I saw apparel there, but but maybe maybe I was in the the consumer side. Are you still involved in clothing and apparel at all, or is that not an area of focus anymore? Uh, it's it's not a core area of focus, although we are invested in some apparel companies. Uh, we do focus on consumer products. The three areas of interest for our investment activities at Revitate are centered around, uh, like I mentioned, areas that we know best being real estate, uh, the sports business, mm-hmm. and consumer brands. Uh, within that, within the consumer side, I serve as senior operating partner at RX3, which is a consumer growth fund founded by Aaron Rodgers, Nate Raby, and and Byron Roth. And within that portfolio, we have exposure to to one apparel company, uh, Mack Weldon. Um, but that's not necessarily the, the the main thrust of our investment activities today. Okay, understood. So that that's really interesting. You were involved in this operational operating business. You helped man, you know, help scale it, helped manage the exit. Sounds like that was a successful outcome for everyone. And then you were attracted to that investment side um, and, and ran the family office or are still running the family office, I should say. So, you know, what's it like running a family office? What's it like going from being involved in the operations of, of a scaled out, you know, global company, e-commerce and all that to what is really, you know, even though family office, you know, manages generally a, a large amount of capital, it's many fewer relationships, I would think, you know, or, or is it, is it, is it a total professional change or is it more of the same in a different context? Uh, I, managing a family office is, is really whatever you want it to be. Uh, <laughs> to your point, it's, it's focused on investing and allocating capital the right way, but how you do that is really uh, in the eye of the beholder. I, mm-hmm. I did come from uh, operations and, and r- running a company day to day, and you kind of have a steady drip of stress in your life, uh, re- being in, in operations and managing the, the day-to-day activities of a business. Sure. Um, investing is different. Investing you have peaks and valleys. There's times when you're working on a deal and it's late nights and a lot of things have to come together to, to get to the other side of a successful outcome. Um, but then there's also the, the downside when you, when you do have more time to think and strategize and, and plan. And, and that, that's been interesting. It's been rewarding. It's been something that, that I'm, I'm appreciative that I have the opportunity to do nowadays. Um, but at the same time, you know, being an operator at heart and understanding how businesses run and function and grow and scale, uh, it, it does bring you back there just having that understanding. And, and that's mm-hmm. kind of what we've done with Revitate is by building out this investment management platform, I've wound up back again at a different scale, but, mm-hmm. but into the day-to-day grind of, of, of operating a business with with people and deadlines and projects and, and, uh, you know, more, more than the, the deal stress that comes with investing investments. Sure. So let's talk about Revitate then. So Revitate is essentially it's, it's building on the success of your family office. Is it, is it scaling the investments and bringing some of them to retail investors or, you know, who is Revitate? What is Revitate? 
<laughs> Thanks, Andy. It's a great question. Yeah. Uh, what Revitate is, it's an investment management platform owned by the family office to accelerate investments in the areas that we know best, real estate, consumer, and, and sports. And to do that, it, it, its roots really were in the opportunity zone space, uh, where coming off of the successful development in, in Sacramento, uh, and the passage of the, the Opportunity Zone legislation at the end of 2017, it became a, a natural transition to take the lessons learned from the Sacramento redevelopment and apply it to other up-and-coming markets across the country, utilizing this new tax incentive around Opportunity Zones. Mm-hmm. And because that tax incentive was, was very strong and compelling and interesting, especially for family offices that we had uh, relationships and friendships with, uh, we were tasked with uh, allocating capital on behalf of people other than ourselves. So through that vehicle and those vehicles, it was the first time that we took outside capital and I'm happy to report that's been a very successful uh, vertical for us. We've, as general partner and principal and founder, we've, we've allocated across four funds into 14 opportunities on developments over $1.4 billion of, of projects around the country in historically lower income areas. So that became the basis of a plan to, to, to build out other offerings and other investment vehicles for investors who wanted to have access to the types of stuff, types of opportunities that, that we were pursuing in the, in the real estate world, as well as in sports and consumer. That's really interesting. And you know, it's, it's a trend I've had a couple guests on the show lately, and it, it's like a recurring trend that I've been hearing a lot lately, which is a family office, either single family office or a multifamily office is having some success, you know, de- deploying capital into direct investments, and then they end up scaling it into either a multifamily office or, or a platform for accredited investors. And I'm, I'm kind of curious why that happens is do you think it's more you know that the the folks running the family office are good at allocating capital and good executors so it just makes sense to scale it with more capital or you know i also see another trend which is family offices they're not really competitive like it's not like a competitive world like a lot of other industries it's you know everything is like a competition you see a lot more uh, sharing of information and and collaboration, I think, in the family office world as well as just co co investing to mm-hmm. manage risk and to you know share. So, what do you think the trends are that that are are driving that? Uh, well, I think you you touched on several of them. I I can speak to our experiences, and and first it was um, it was designed around this opportunity zone program where where. Um, we wanted to make investments into the opportunity zone space because we believed in the the core mission of the program to help revitalize under underprivileged communities through capitalism through private investments mm-hmm. uh, and had that experience in, in what we did up in sacramento uh, and in order to do it the right way and in order to scale the business correctly we wanted to be able to to, to do it at scale and bring in professionals to help us and and build out a platform and and that meant um, the the interest from investors and the economics that come through being general partners in a fund uh, allowed us to to uh, to create a infrastructure that 
on our own, we may not have been able to create um, and and be dedicated specialists in, in an area. So, so, so I'm sorry to interrupt. So that's really a function of like economy of scale, asset under management type thing, because I'm thinking, okay, unless you're like a sovereign wealth fund or something, even a large family office isn't going to have as much scale as as several family offices pooling their money together or several family offices here plus other accredited investors so is is that just really you ha- you have to re- reach a certain scale to do this these types of projects efficiently uh in in especially in real estate real estate's a very capital intensive business mm-hmm. uh, so certainly we could have not done any of that and just invested off the family balance sheet into stuff that we found interesting or compelling or or done some yeah. OZ invest investing but in order to build a our, our goal was never just to be principal investors only it was to build a business mm-hmm. it's led by principal investment and principal involvement and the balance sheet and the working capital to create create a business unit that then uh, because of outside capital uh, becomes a, a sum greater than its parts where where we can be experts in a field and be leaders in a, in a, in a field and attract talent and and be able to leverage skill sets across the platform and leverage resources across across the platform to be better investors than we than we would otherwise be if we were just doing it on our own and as well as as relationships and deal flow and all those things that that are required in order to be a a good investor you have to be active in the markets and be known in the markets and if you're just a single family office uh, it's hard to get the attention yeah and you know another theme i've heard and this is really more on the professional side uh, of family offices is sometimes there will be a liquidity event or an exit of, of like a family business. And so there'll be a lot of that upfront work in like the first couple of years and allocating that, you know, initial capital from a liquidity event. And then it's like, well, now what, <laughs> you know, hopefully those, hopefully that capital is, is returning um, capital and income. So there's things to reinvest. But I, I think also, especially a lot of principals and, and self-managed family offices, uh, entrepreneurial people, um, you know, they don't want to sit on their hands and and just you know watch investments perform, even perform well. You know, it's just um, creative people want to build things. And that's exactly. I, I'm I'm older than I once was, but that was uh, as we we're establishing everything. That was a, a big thought in my head. Was I just don't want to be sitting in front of a computer screen watching stocks go up and down for the rest of my life? Yeah. So building a business, creating a platform. Uh, Taking tying together all of the family interests, uh, in in and being able to leverage them and scale them, and and I will say too, uh, and I haven't touched on uh, in depth yet, is I do all of this with with my my sister. She's a she's my general partner and, and co managing partner in all of our funds and all of our activities, and and serves as our chief impact officer. And core to everything that we do at Revitate is is focused on making sure that the investments that we that we're making and the the uh, the product lines and, and investment lines that we're pursuing are rooted in delivering on a positive social and economic impact. And it, it's really an evolution of 
family, the family's philanthropic activities, where the family's always been philanthropic through the years and through the decades. And, and now we realize there's more ways to do good than just writing checks to charity. We certainly do that, but by, by focusing in areas and, and investment opportunities where you can see real impact in communities, um, it it's not doesn't have to be impact investing where it's concessionary. Mm-hmm. Just by making good, uh, good investment decisions that also have uh, have a economic and social impact results, uh, it's something that really kind of ties a bow on, on our activities as a firm and, and, and unites family, the, the values of the family, the mission of the family, alongside our fiduciary responsibilities uh, on the for the capital and on behalf of our investors. Yeah, you know, that's a really interesting point. And I think we're going to get to opportunity zones, but uh, later in the in the interview, but it's it's an interesting point that, you know, you can be a fiduciary, you can make good investments, especially with opportunity zones investments, it can be very profitable. And it's not either or, they can also be very good for a, a community or for an area of the country that you know, needs investment. I mean, especially some of these funds that are building multifamily housing or just other really needed, you know, infrastructure. Um, it, it just isn't an either or. And, and that, that's a really interesting comment you made. It's not just about writing a check that you can actually align your investments and your business activities with your values. Right. So let's talk briefly, because I want to get to real estate, but I have to ask about the fact that you're a co-owner of the Sacramento Kings, um, I think this is this is so interesting. Um, but let me ask first: How did you get involved with owning a professional sports franchise? Was that something that you were your family was seeking, or did it did you just kind of, you know, happen into it? How does that happen? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's various lengths of versions of that story, but I'll sure. I'll try to uh, be brief. Uh, families always had a passion and. For the business for sports in general and the business of sports uh, my mom played golf and tennis at ucla i grew up playing all different sports i'm um, focusing on football at the end and uh and my dad loved it my dad is is uh, originally from india so he came here for college when he was 17 years old and and fell in love with american culture and, and part of american culture and pursuing the american dream was a love of sports Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that's something that just really bound the family together. And uh, dating back to the early 1990s, uh, the NFL was seeking to uh, expand internationally, and they formed uh, what was called then the World League of American Football, and it became became known as NFL Europe. And my mm-hmm. father, through some connections, got involved with that and became the uh, the original owner of one of the teams in the World League. And and had a great time. So I was young then, but it was it was something that I know my my parents they loved the experience. My dad got to sit on a couple of NFL boards, and and it was just uh, one of those memories in life that he, uh, regardless of the financial success or not success, they wound up doing okay on it. But uh, uh, it wasn't some massive home run. But he just loved it. It was the best investment he ever made in terms of uh, emotional ROI. Well, that that was actually something I was going to ask about because at least from, and maybe that's changing, but from what I read that the, in theory, the returns on owning a professional sports franchise, at least in terms of like yield or free cash flow, 
are not that profitable. But on the other hand, I'm thinking, well, the brand equity or the book value of those franchises, those brands is probably astronomical and probably gross. So, you know, are sports franchises a good investment on financial terms or is it, is it partially uh, an emotional yield or a lifestyle yield? I, I think it used to be the former and then things started to change. And really that's what brought us back into the business of sports is um, probably about 10 or 12, 13 years ago, we saw things starting to change. Like the NFL, they've always been very, very successful. The NBA, we saw as potential to, to, to really grow, uh, especially because with basketball, you could take it international. We knew the media rights were, were being bid up. There were a lot of fundamental, the demographics were better. We, we knew there was a lot of fundamental value that was about to be unlocked in, in the business of sports and in the, in the NBA in particular. So mm. Over the over the course of a few years, we looked at a few different opportunities, and then ultimately, long story short, uh, joined the the Sacramento Kings as principal co-owners, and, and it's been a just phenomenal run. We've had a great time um, building out, being being part of the the redevelopment of downtown Sacramento, and and being part of the the growth of the NBA on a global scale. And and I think to your point on what does it look like from an investment perspective. Uh, most most teams and most leagues now, unless there there's dynamic factors such as they're like really going going for a championship or they're really poorly run teams. In unless general, they're the Cleveland Browns, basically. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> uh, but but they should be run on a cash flow positive basis. Wow. Okay. Uh, and then you get the benefit of the appreciation over the long term, which sure. in the NBA at least uh, it can. Uh, knowledgeable about those numbers, I think it's about a 15% compound, compounded annual growth rate for the league over the last decade or so. so wow! If you can if you can grow like that and have a cash flow positive business and be do something that has tremendous emotional ROI, then uh, why not? Why not? I think that's why the one of the reasons why the valuations have, have exploded is there's there's a limited number of these franchises in, mm-hmm. in the best sports and tremendous demand and limited supply with all these very attractive macro factors coming into the space. Absolutely. I mean, it, and I, I think you hit the nail on the head there when you use the word unlocking. I mean, it, it brings to mind. So Jimmy and I might sometimes co-host on this show. We both went to Notre Dame and I forget the exact stat. And this was probably, well, this was over 10 years ago, but it was something like the book value of the brand name is probably like a billion dollars or something. And that's really because of sports. And I mean, that's a, that's a university it's run as a not-for-profit, but if, if you can have positive cash flow and think about that kind of growth and brand equity that these sports leagues build, I mean, I, I can see the incredible potential there. So um, that's really interesting to hear that the dynamics have shifted. So the Sacramento Kings, and, and you mentioned that there was real estate development and in, in, in downtown Sacramento. So how much is real estate involved with owning you know, the sports franchise? Is that a big component of the investment or financial picture? It can be. It really depends on the team. I, I think how we view it is, uh, for us, it was very important. 
when, when you look at the evolution, just kind of going back to this earlier point of how the business of sports has evolved, it used to be a franchise was, was a lifestyle investment for a wealthy business, local, local business leader. And mm-hmm. they played in a municipal stadium and, and they drove their revenues off the gate receipts and the media rights and, and hopefully made a little money at the, at the end of the day, but it was a lifestyle business and it was a seasonal business. And they got their, their, their main business was typically, their main money makers were typically elsewhere. Uh, it evolved where team owners saw the opportunity to build their own stadiums or control the economics on, on, on stadiums or arenas. And then uh, when they had a permanent a permanent place, be able to develop the adjacent real estate. Many examples of that, whether it's LA Live in downtown LA or mm-hmm. or uh, what we've done up in Sacramento, all across the country, stadium districts and arena districts have proven a, a really viable model for sports sports owners. And yeah. and now we're seeing a, a whole new wave of, of of expanding these platforms that have this tremendous. Uh, emotional connection with with the local population and you're able to take that that uh, that emotional connection and leverage it into new business opportunities whether it's in whether it's in technology or e-gaming or Mm -hmm. cryptocurrencies and nfts there's all sorts of new business ideas within the business of sports that are that are proven to be very valuable and very viable that's interesting. Yeah, they all come from that, the brand, that franchise, the connection to the local community. Um, let's shift gears a little bit. So we've talked about real estate a little bit, um, but it sounds like you really got your start in real estate from managing the family office. Um, so could you talk a little bit about that and in, in your investment philosophy with real estate? Sure. So dating back to... Um kind of the family roots. I mentioned the family's always been in real estate, real estate development. Um, my parents took the profits from the apparel business uh, back when I was little and and what they would do with it is buy, buy land and then develop projects over time. So I, I got experience uh, really working uh, on, w- within the family structure on developments that we were doing in, in the Southwest, in California, Arizona, and, and Nevada. Um, prior to business school. And then, as I mentioned, after business school, I went into the operations of the apparel company. Um, since the Sacramento experience, then it, it's really helped us professionalize our investment activities and, and do so in a way that we can scale them. Um, and, and it's been through through the, build, the building of our, our investment management platform that I mentioned. So by having outside capital join us in our investment activities, we've been able to uh, attract really talented, high caliber investment professionals mm-hmm. um, and, and have focused on two strategies to date. Uh, one has been the opportunity zones that we mentioned uh, where we're allocating capital to, to developers uh, for um, mostly multifamily and some industrial and, and other asset types in emerging secondary markets around the country. So up and coming cities that have benefited from the, the shift in, 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 in growth in, in businesses and population as, people, as the whole country kind of shook up um, post COVID. 
Right. And then our, our other strategy is focused on acquiring workforce housing in the Midwest, which has been a bit overlooked in terms of the huge amounts of, of uh, institutional capital that's gone into the Sunbelt uh, because of, of you know, attractive demographics and regulatory climate and, and population trends. Um, but we, we see a lot of interesting things happening in the Midwest, especially in the I-70 corridor, uh, back closer to, uh, to where you went to school out in, in Indiana and in South Bend. We actually just closed on a multifamily project in South Bend uh, about a month ago. And, and we see Kansas City and Louisville and Indianapolis, Columbus, those markets as being very viable alternatives to the the Chicago's of the world and, and a lot of people moving into those areas and very stable, steady growing um, workforce and, and, and employment base. And we're, we're really lucky to have, I mentioned attracting high quality talent. Uh, we have Chris Marsh leading that strategy. It was a 20 year veteran of the Irvine company, uh, 10 years as president of the multifamily division overseeing 65,000 units on behalf of the company, uh, the third, large, third largest multifamily portfolio in the country was measured by revenue. So he left there uh, about a year ago and, and joined, uh, joined us in the partnership um, to, to acquire multifamily in the Midwest. So th- that's really interesting, the strategy on, on the Midwest. And you're, you're absolutely right. You know, there's been so much focus on the Sun Belt. And anytime a trade gets that crowded, uh, you know, it always makes me a little nervous, even by the way, I am an LP and a multifamily fund that invests heavily in the Sun Belt. So I also, you know, I believe in that larger demographic trend. But one one thing that you said was really interesting to me. So you were talking about that I-70 corridor and, you know, I'm in the Midwest, I'm in Michigan, I'm, uh, grew up in Columbus, Ohio, went to school in Indiana, lived in Chicago. I've been all over the Midwest. It seems to me that that I-70 corridor, I, People are probably going to laugh at this, but it almost sounds to me like you described like the Sun Belt of the Midwest. And I, I know there's no such thing as the Sun Belt of the Midwest, you know, but um, the areas that you mentioned seem to be a little more business friendly, regulatory climate, uh, a little bit warmer weather. I mean, do you, do you kind of look at the Midwest? Like it almost seems like the Midwest is like too big of a word to describe you know, the specific areas that you're investing in that you've located, which are really more specific in that. Cause like when I compare Indiana to Illinois, it's almost from a legal perspective, regulatory perspective, it's like two different worlds. Absolutely. And then uh, we view that I-70 corridor as having, uh, there's probably seven or eight target markets within that triangle. Could you use that, by the way, the Sun Belt of the Midwest? Maybe that could go in your marketing materials. I, yeah, maybe it's a snow belt of the Midwest, rust yeah. belt. <laughs> Anti-rust belt. How's that? Go, go on. So there's seven or eight. Sorry, I interrupted. Seven oh, or eight um, MSAs. Yeah. So we see seven or eight uh, real, really attractive markets that do have uh, very conducive regulatory environments and pro-business uh, environments that, that have successfully attracted businesses uh, and population that have relocated, whether it's within the Midwest or, or from externally. Uh, and, and we think that trend is, is here to stay. Uh, a lot of people used to, after graduating from their Big Ten school, they would 
they would rush to Chicago and that mm-hmm. would be their, their, their first, uh, uh, first center of employment and first jobs and where a lot of the businesses were. And Chicago is still a great city, but it's becoming, the, the Midwest is becoming more fragmented. And you do see mm-hmm. Des Moines, Iowa and Indianapolis and Kansas City is becoming alternative uh, technology communities where there's a lot of money coming in from from uh, technology companies establishing themselves in those marketplaces and being able to successfully recruit and attract talent that uh, maybe 10, 20 years ago wouldn't have thought of Kansas City or some of these other cities as, as being uh, a place that they wanted to go to establish sure. their careers, but but that that's changed, and, and there's a lot of really interesting dynamic things happening that we we don't see slowing down in those markets. That's a really interesting. Um, it's an interesting point. I think I agree. Um, you know, traveling all over the Midwest, which I do, um, there there are places. You know, in, in Columbus, for instance, just as a for instance. Um, I wouldn't bet against that city. And I actually, when I grew up there, we used to joke, it was like a cow town. And it's now it, when I go back, it's like, it's a mini Chicago. It's not a, it's not a cow town. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet against that market either. Um, you know, with the industry and the university there. So another thing about the fund. So, and I'll, I'll make sure to link to this fund in our show notes, the Revitate Cherry Tree Multifamily Fund. But, um, it mentions that you have a target purchase price range of that 10 to 40 million plus mm-hmm. target range. Could you talk a little bit about that range? Is 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 the floor of like a $10 million asset? Is that just get to get scale in terms of you know operating it and 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 adding value? Or, or are there other reasons that you like assets in this sort of sweet spot? Yeah, it's a great question. And really what we're looking to do and what we are are successfully executing is is creating portfolios, doing it the hard way, buying mm-hmm. uh, one-off property, multifamily properties, workforce housing uh, from typically regional owners, uh, some mom and pop owners, and, and oftentimes uh, they may not be as institutionally managed as our team led by Chris, and he has a uh, he has a, a group of mostly former Irvine Company professionals who have the the skill sets, the experience, uh, the technical skills to go in and through operational or op- operational value add and Im- improve the results by focusing on less to lease and in, in the uh, mm-hmm. when when the rental tr- uh, rental turnover happens um, and 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 not necessarily taking a lot of risk on on physical value add by changing around the properties. We're we're mostly focused on on preserving the workforce housing that exists so that normal middle-class Americans or lower lower middle-class Americans who work in warehouses, work in factories, maybe have starting out white-collar jobs, have viable, affordable options without going into government assistance. These are, these are market housings. They're mm-hmm. just inherently affordable because of the price points, which we're able to deliver these assets to the marketplace. So sounds like this is the housing that, you know, we desperately need to be uh, built, but also operated in the United States and variety and of, yeah. And preserve that's interesting. So it's not, you're not gentrifying here. And it's also interesting. So when it's value add, 
the value add is really more on the operation side rather than on the sticks and bricks or new appliances or something like that. Exactly. We'll still improve the the, the units as they as they turn over and make the necessary mm-hmm. investments into the property, but it's really not with the intent to uh, fix up the property such that you can you can jack up the rents and push in a new cohort of, of renters. We're, we're there really focused on retention and making sure that these physical assets are here to stay so that more people who need this type of, of living and want this type of living have it in an affordable manner. Understood. And, and you mentioned, you know, building a portfolio the old fashioned way. I love that, you know, phrase and I, I totally get it. I wanted to ask though, is the idea to build that portfolio just for the benefit of the fund to own and operate it within the fund? Or I'm also sort of thinking like, is there a strategy there of, you know, like a roll up where you build it up to a certain size where the portfolio would be attractive to like an institutional buyer? I, I guess what's what's the thought with the portfolio strategy? Yeah, it, it's it's either of those. We plan on owning these for our fund life and and by aggregating a portfolio and, and putting together several thousand units in, in a few key markets, then it does inherently become much more interesting towards the, the, the large Wall Street funds, the big institutional funds that are that want to be in these markets, but they're not going to do it the hard way of plucking off <laughs> yeah. one and two Z apartment, apartments, but they'll be very aggressive and historically have been I'm buying portfolios. So, so what's it, that scale like? What's what's a legit portfolio like with that type of buyer? Is it is it a quarter billion, a half billion? Is it a billion? Yeah, you know, our our goals are to build out ten thousand units in this I seventy corridor over a number of years. So across okay. a few different funds, uh, and and within each market, uh, I I mentioned there's kind of seventy eight priority markets within uh, our acquisitions teams. Uh, uh, views, uh, but we'll wind up with call it three to four markets where we'll build out the bulk of our portfolios and have several thousand units in, in, in each of those. Okay. Wow. Okay. So I want to shift now to talk about OZ funds. And I think this is interesting that, you know, you personally and your group was an early mover and opportunity zone funds. So you saw the potential early along with my partner, Jimmy Atkinson, you know, you, you know, there's a, <laughs> not a lot of people really that in those very early days kind of got it right away, but also were willing to, you know, put their own skin in the game. And yeah. uh, um, so talk about, you know, how did you see that, I guess, opportunity right away? Why why were you more comfortable with it? You know, why were you able to be ahead of the curve and get comfortable with it more quickly than a lot of other players in the real estate world? I think it was a product of of the Sacramento experience, having just completed this billion dollar redevelopment in in the downtown core of Sacramento, uh, the, the King's ownership group, and seeing the the real impact that it can have, not just for ownership, but importantly for the city and the community. It was it was something that was that was really inspiring. And, and something that you think you only get a, a one-time shot in life to be able to do something as, as meaningful as that. And then right on the back of that development, there was this new program. So it was 
upon reading about it and learning about it very early on, I think it was back in February of 18. So just at, right after the, the law was passed, mm-hmm. um, got to, up to speed and, and learned what this program's intentions were and, and kind of dove in. I mean, it really was something that uh, when I saw it and thought about it, it was, it seemed very much relevant to the experience and the, the passions and the interests that, that I personally had. And uh, we got involved in policy at the beginning because to your point at the very beginning, nobody knew what the heck was, was happening uh, in, right. in, in how the regulations were going to roll out. So we, we got into contact with the treasury department and through some connections in the Senate and, and started just learning and, and uh, we were able to provide some input from an in, in, industry practitioner standpoint on how the regulations would, would roll out. And, and as soon as we could, we, we started investing and, and that's been uh, something that's been very fulfilling is, is being early and, and being a leader in the space. And so I know now Revitate has the Revitate Impact OZ fund, and that's open for investors right now, as I understand it, for accredited investors. Could you talk a little bit about that fund and what it's specifically investing in? Sure. It's so Revitate Impact is really focused on uh, an evolution of, of our work in Opportunity Zones uh, previously, where we're, we're targeting uh, emerging secondary markets across the country. So we're investing nationally. Uh, a lot of it's driven from market research on uh, where businesses and people are moving and where there's inherent supply demand imbalances. So a lot, a lot of people moving into these up and coming markets uh, and some of them are overheated, but not all of them are. And there's certainly places uh, across the country where there's really strong underlying demographic and uh, and business uh, business growth uh, and, and haven't built the supply to accommodate that. So we're focused in those areas. Is this um, multifamily so, or industrial or is it anything? And then by asset class, we're mostly multifamily. We've, we've invested, uh, I think 80% of, of our equity to date has gone into multifamily. Uh, although we have invested in, in pretty much all asset classes. Wow. Uh, we'll be targeting multifamily and industrial with the, with the new fund vehicle. Um, and we partner with best in class local developers to, to build uh, mostly multifamily and up and coming parts of upcoming cities. So our deal sizes are, are mid cap. So call it 50 million to $150 million projects. Um, not, not so big that it's these big mega deals that the big Wall Street funds uh, like mm-hmm. to do in big gateway markets, but also bigger than what um, what developers typically can syndicate on their own. So we we well, we, Alex, this sounds like a pretty big fund because you tell you it's diversified nationally, and the sweet spot is fifty to one hundred fifty million mid market to be diversified and have that project size. I mean, this sounds like a frankly a massive OZ fund. Well, we're we're mid-sized, so we're okay. over two hundred million dollar cap. The okay. deal the deals being fifty to one fifty means that the, uh, the there's two thirds of the deal. Oh, the equity component is is lower. I see, Correct, but, yeah. but but still, that, you know, those are pretty good sized deals to have one fund given investor exposure to Correct. different sectors and different geographic areas. That's right. Our goal is to be uh, 
geographically diversified, have some asset class diversification, and and have approximately 10 projects that we'll be allocating capital to. That's not easy. Honestly, I've, I've looked through OZ funds. I'm an LP in a couple different opportunity zone funds. It's, it's, there aren't that many you know, truly diversified funds. So it's, it's not an easy trick to, uh, to pull off. Do you have any predictions on the Opportunity Zones program, Alex? Do you think it's going to be extended? Do you think it'll be renewed? Do you think it'll be made permanent? Um, it's hard to, hard to predict. Uh, that being said, well, I will say, first of all, uh, a lot of the low-lying fruit has been picked. It, we're now at a point I think to your earlier uh, statement where you you have to you have to search a little harder to find the good deals and to be able to accomplish those those diversification goals that that you mentioned. It's, mm-hmm. it, we're not in an environment where everybody can just every time Dick and Harry can can find a bunch of great OZ deals. Now now right. uh, you do need to be a specialist um, in terms of how the industry goes from here. Uh, there is legislation, as you're probably aware, to extend extend the bill and make some uh, make some reforms to it. Uh, it that's going to require an act of Congress. So who, who knows what happens? Uh, we're optimistic mm-hmm. that something can get done this year, uh, and we're uh, we've been involved in the process, and we do we are very supportive of the bipartisan legislation that's in front of Congress right now. Absolutely. Well, um, I'm optimistic that it will be extended. Um, but Alex, really, really good conversation today. I mean, I appreciate, you know, just that that family office perspective and and that you've been involved in a lot of different industries as an operator, but then also now on the investment side and, you know, being um, you know, an early adopter or or a thought leader with opportunity zones. I think it's really great the you know, that Revitate is, um, you know, bringing that offering to accredited investors and, you know, allowing others to invest alongside you on that platform. So on that note, where can our listeners and viewers go to learn more about Revitate and your uh, your offerings that you have for accredited investors? Our best resource is our website at revitate.co. Okay. And I'll be sure to link that as well as some of the other things we discussed on our show notes page. So you can always go to altsdb.com slash podcast to access our show notes. And I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, take a moment to just recognize our production team, Scott and Courtney. Uh, They've been doing a great job making me look and sound better than I deserve. And I also want to remind our listeners and viewers, don't forget to subscribe to us to make sure that you receive our new episodes as we release them. Alex, thanks so much for joining the show today. Great. Thanks so much, Andy. You enjoyed it. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. The Alternative Investment Podcast is produced by the Alternative Investment Database, online at altsdb.com. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and access the show notes by visiting altsdb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode. Music.